Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. What is worship? The dictionary defines worship in this way, an expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. We can, of course, think about the things that we do in church as worship, bringing our offerings to the Lord, bringing our prayers and our praises to God. All of that is worship, but What about outside of church? Is it possible to worship God outside of this sanctuary? And we'd say, yes, of course it is. We can pray in our homes. We can offer praise to God outside in the world. But God also tells us there are other ways to praise him, even in the world. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your appropriate worship. It's clear from those words that God wants us to worship him even by our actions, even by our obedience to his word and to his will. Today we're going to focus on our Old Testament lesson recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20. And there's a lot in there as we think about all of the Ten Commandments, and a lot can be said about them, but today I'd like to especially just focus on the first six verses. And I think those are especially good for us to focus on for a couple of reasons. First of all, we think about them as the basis for what Luther calls the conclusion to the commandments, kind of providing a a summary for us when following the commandments, that part that begins, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I follow up on the guilt and so forth. But then secondly, we also think about what Luther said in regard to the first commandment. He said it is the chief source and fountainhead from which all of the rest of the commandments proceed. And so I think those six verses are are nice ones for us to consider as we we can kind of consider all of God's commands by, by looking to those verses. And so we take up the theme, proper worship includes obedience to God's commands out of fear of God and out of love for God. I don't know about you, but I remember back in my own catechism class, I remember our instructor telling us that when we talk about fear of God, it's not referring to being afraid of God so much as it is showing respect and honor to God. And I remember our pastor telling us the reason for this is especially that we as Christians don't need to be afraid of God because we know that God has already punished our sins in Christ, which is all true, of course, right? But I also think about what Martin Luther includes in his explanation to the conclusion of the commandments. He says, God threatens to punish all who transgress these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not disobey these commandments. From that, we see that Luther himself understood that one reason for us to obey, or at least not to disobey the commandments, was terror or fear that God is going to punish us for our sins. That is one of the motivations that is there. God certainly wants us to take his commands serious and to recognize that he threatens punishment for those who break the commandments. We see this even at the children, with the children of Israel when they're at the foot of Mount Sinai where God speaks these words to, to Moses and really to his people as well. 
know how that happens. It doesn't happen on a nice, bright, sunny day like today with a cool breeze blowing through as Moses is surrounded by green grass and, and these sheep that are gazing on, in that gra- grazing on that grass and beautiful flower beds all around. No. It's with smoke and an earthquake and with a trumpet call. God shows his power and might there at the mountain and even commands that they aren't to touch the mountain, neither them nor their animals, lest they die. He wants to show them he is serious about these words, about these commands. No, the Ten Commandments aren't merely God's advice to his people or his suggestions. They are the demands of God and he threatens punishment to those who break them. We know of that punishment that can come as a result of breaking God's commands. There's punishment even that we see in this world, or at least we would maybe call it consequences. As we know that if somebody does not honor their parents or does not honor authority, it can mean that maybe they're going to experience some sort of consequence from those in authority. Maybe it's a fine. Maybe they're thrown in jail. Or those that are sexually immoral, They can also experience a consequence and maybe suffer from venereal disease. Or those that commit adultery can lead to a broken home. Or those that are addicted to alcohol or drugs, it can lead to a broken life. We recognize there are consequences or or earthly judgments, so to speak, for sin. But we also know further that God brings his wrath and judgment upon us in in a divine way as well, even beyond earthly consequences. We see it in the Bible as God's patience wore thin with the unbelieving world and he brought his destructive flood upon the world. Or think about what God did with Sodom and Gomorrah and what God also promises to do on the last day is all stand before him who judges the world. Yes, there is an element of terror in our thoughts and hearts and minds when it comes to God's commands, not wanting to break them lest his judgment and punishment come upon us. But there are greater reasons for us to desire to obey the commandments. God gives his first commandment. He says this in our text for today. You shall have no other gods besides me. And he goes on to explain, you shall not make any carved image for yourself or a likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or be subservient to them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Has that ever taken you as a bit odd that God calls himself jealous? Yeah, we usually think about jealousy as a bad thing, a synonym for envy, which is a sin. But think about this. Imagine that there is a, a wife who sees her husband flirting with another woman, and she is jealous. Does she sin in being jealous when she sees that? By no means, right? She, she's jealous. She desires what rightfully belongs to her, right? She is the one who's supposed to have the focus, intention, and attraction of her husband. It's supposed to be on her, not upon some other woman. And so she doesn't sin when she is jealous of that affection of her husband. So too, when it comes to God, God is not sinning when he is jealous of the adoration and the respect that belongs only to him as the creator God. 
and yet we give it to others, to other things, to other creatures. I'm sure nobody here today would, would say that, that they would bow down to a statue or idol. That seems utterly foolish, doesn't it? It reminds me of what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 44 as he describes this man who takes a log and half of it he uses it to cook his food and to heat his home. And with the other half, he fashions it into an idol and he bows down to it. To think about how ridiculous that is, right? He, he has so little respect for that, that log that he's going to burn half of it. Why not burn the rest of it? And then he himself makes the little statue that he bows down and worships to Obviously, that man is greater than the statue that he made, and, and yet he doesn't think about all of these things. And we maybe laugh at such an individual that would, would love and, and trust a, a man-made thing like that. Don't we do similar things at times, placing our trust in man-made things, whether it's in, in money or Maybe sometimes in good luck charms, trusting that this little object that we have is going to see us through this or that or, or bring us good fortune in the future. Or even going further, we consider what St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 when he says that the heathen, the heathen, heathen have traded the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who is worthy of praise forever. Amen. We, of course, know throughout human history there's been different peoples and tribes that have bowed down to sun, moon, and stars, and rain, and, and uh, the, the forests, and animals, and even people as well, too. And we say that's utterly foolish, right? Shouldn't they be worshiping instead the one that made all of those things, the one who is far greater than them? Again, here, too. As much as we want to mock and ridicule those other cultures, we can fall into the same trap, especially when it comes to our love and trust and fear of people. Maybe it's elevating a certain politician that we believe that that politician is going to save us and save our world, placing our trust in them. Or maybe it comes to bowing down to a celebrity and kind of worshiping the ground they walk on or what about those in academia we think about scientists and people with advanced degrees listening to what they say instead of listening to what God says in his word as we certainly violate that very first commandment in a variety of ways even in our world today fearing loving and trusting other things above the one true God when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, Moses asked the question, well, who should I say sent me? As he's going back to the people in Egypt, you know, how do I convince them that, that I actually spoke to the true God? And, and what does God say? He says, tell them, I am sent you. He uses this term for himself, really making reference to the fact that he is the one who was, who is, and will ever be. The one who has always been and will always be the source of everything, God himself. Certainly he deserves our reverence. He deserves our honor and respect because he is the one who made us. He is the one who made everything else in our world. He deserves our worship for that reason, doesn't he? 
And he desires us to worship him by not just singing his praises, but also by obeying his commands. A number of years ago, there was a song on the radio in which the, the singer of the band, he, he spoke in that song or sung in that song these words. He says, nail in my head from my creator. You gave me life, now show me how to live. I've often thought about those lyrics. It's almost like he's crying out to the sky, to his creator. You gave me life, show me how to live. You've left me here all alone. I, I have no idea what you want me to do. When it's all there, isn't it? It's all in God's word. Hasn't our creator shown us how to live here, right? It's not a mystery. He's given us his commands, how the one who created us, who made us and made this world, also desires us to live in his word. We show reverence and obedience to him. We worship him by following those commands. There's even a greater reason for us to desire to follow God's commands, and that is love for him. You know, when we look at this section of scripture and we consider the Ten Commandments, we often jump to verse number three in our lesson for today. We, we jump right away to what we call the first commandment, right? And we maybe overlook those first two verses of our text that say this, then God spoke all of these words, and what does he say in verse two? I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt where you were slaves. Why do you think God begins his commandments in that way? Isn't it because he wants to give his people the proper motivation for obeying the commandments? He really begins, so to speak, with the gospel, doesn't he? He points out that he is their God who rescued them from slavery. We think about how amazingly God did that, how God sent Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh and how God brought those Ten Commandments. And every step of the way as Pharaoh is hardening his heart and maybe he's tightening the screws on the children of Israel and they're saying, Moses, why are you doing this? Life was better without you. But God had a plan, right? And eventually God touches the right, pushes the right button for Pharaoh as he takes his son and finally Pharaoh releases them, go, get out of here. And those children of Israel, those hundreds of thousands of people, escape slavery. Pharaoh finally lets them go. And all of the Egyptians start giving them their, their gold and, and all of their valuables as well. Take them and leave. And even as they're backed up against the Red Sea, there's people that are wondering if this was a good idea. We had it better when we were slaves in Egypt. Now we're going to die here at the Red Sea, Moses. Then God shows his power, doesn't he? And he, he parts the waters and they walk on dry ground through the waters of the Red Sea. But Pharaoh and his armies follow, don't they? God comes and brings the waters crashing down upon them. God shows his power and might over the one, one of the greatest and most powerful kings and kingdoms in the world at that, that point. God shows who's in control and he also rescues them in that incredible way. Is God's rescue for us any less incredible? We think about ourselves, the way that every one of us was born into this world as slaves to sin. Maybe like the children of Israel, maybe we've overlooked really how bad things are and maybe have thought that it's better for us to remain slaves to sin. 
not really understanding the consequences for sin. As the scriptures say, the wages of sin is death. And that's not just temporal death, but eternal death and destruction forever in hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, Amen, amen, I tell you, everyone who keeps committing sin is a slave to sin. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, But a slave does not remain in the family forever. A son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Think about God's rescue of us. It's greater than his rescue of the children of Israel from Egypt, isn't it? That God descended to his creation. He became even part of his creation. He submitted himself to his own rules as he took on human flesh. And he paid the price for your freedom. That price was great. As Luther puts it, not with silver or gold, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, in order that I might be his own. As God paid the greatest price, he gave his own lifeblood for you and for me. The creator dies for his creation in order that we might be his own, in order that we might be free from our bondage to sin and children of God. And he tells us now this, is the proper motivation for following his commandments, love and appreciation for all that he has done for us, for freeing us from our sin and from the destruction that those sins bring upon us. You know, as a, a pastor over the years, people, whether young or old alike, have asked this question at times, and, and that's this. You know, if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to fall into sin... Why did he even put the tree in the middle of, of the garden? You know, knowing what would happen when they ate from the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, why did he even put it there? Well, Martin Luther has remarked that the tree of knowledge and good and evil was Adam and Eve's altar. Think about that. What does that mean, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was Adam and Eve's altar? altar. He was making the point that it was a way that God had given them to worship him. If God had given them no option to sin, they couldn't show their love for him. They would be just robots doing exactly what God commanded and they could do no other. But by giving them the option to sin, he was giving them a way to show their love and appreciation for him as God. So too, God has given us his commandments as a way for us to show our love and appreciation for him. Sadly, as much as we want to follow them, we do break those commandments. We do fall short of what God commands. But again, that is why God sent his son into the world. As Paul writes in Galatians 4, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, so that he would be born under law in order to redeem those under the law so that we would be adopted as sons. As God knew that mankind would break his commandments, he knew the children of Israel, who he gave the commandments to on Mount Sinai, would break them, but that's why he sends his son to obey them perfectly for you and for me, to win our freedom from sin and death, and he desires us 
now to look at those commandments differently, to want to follow them, not to earn our way to heaven, but as a way to say thank you to God for all that he has done for us. As you well know, in Luther's small catechism, the way that he explains each of the commandments, he begins in the same way, doesn't he? As we think about all the rest of the commandments, 2 through 10, how do they begin? We should fear and love God so that. What was Luther doing with that? Well, it seems like from his large catechism, what he's doing is he's hearkening us back to the very first commandment. Backing back to our reason for following all the rest, we should fear and love God, recognizing Him as the only true God, wanting to fear, love, and trust in Him above all things, wanting to worship Him. Remember what I began the sermon with today as I asked what is the definition of worship, and as I read for you that it is the reverence an adoration of a deity. And I want you to think about that. Reverence, fear, adoration, love, deity, God. That's what worship is. And so with the commandments, God wants us to fear and love him because of all that he has done for us in Christ. That he has rescued us from our sin and our slavery to sin. He's made us his own dear children and given us the gift of eternal life through him. Amen. I invite the congregation to please rise. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be forevermore.